1: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human
2: past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we begin, we've got two shouts out. So thank you so much to Connor and Allison for subscribing over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. You are supporting what we do, and we hope that you enjoy the bonus content that is coming your way. And you too, listener, can subscribe at patreon.com
1: slash the dirt podcast, or you can sponsor an episode for a minimum donation of $25 on a topic of your choice. And for $0 and minimal time, you can recommend The Dirt to everyone around you. And you can also leave us stars and reviews on the podcast platform you use. We may be four years into the show, but your ratings still have a huge impact on helping new listeners find us.
2: Yeah, so, you know, we've got liking, subscribing, rating, reviewing, which is all part of the digital theater of social media, which brings us neatly to today's topic.
1: Ember, we're going to the theater. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if our listeners have picked up on this by now, but maybe not since it was news to you in our 15 plus years of acquaintanceship. I mean, I would go I mean, as far as to say I, friendship. Maybe I just memory hold that part. It's very possible. I was a total theater kid. Those were my people in high school. Um, I don't like performing, you know, in public, in plays and things. I was much more on the set design and tech end of
2: things. Oh, yeah. But, no, I knew uh, that. I knew that in like a mm-hmm. like a cellular way. I knew that. Like, Yeah, I'm constitutionally unable to... <laughs>
1: not be the tech. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, I was in the, the annual musical senior year because I figured I should have the experience. Didn't like it. <laughs> Cause I was like, you know, when I'm not gonna pursue a theater, so maybe I'll just try out for the play. and uh, it was Jesus Christ superstar. Oh, uh, yeah, it turns out I prefer to be behind the scenes um, and behind a microphone, which I've turned into a career. Look at that. Yeah. So you're not much of a, a theater person,
2: Um, in, in singingly no, or otherwise? In no way am I a theater person. Um, I There was a brief time where I thought that I was like into like stage plays and like one act plays and sort Mm. of like Mm -hmm. reading as like American lit kind of Mm. stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, no, never had any interest in performance, never had any interest in production, uh, minimal interest in witnessing. Um, (laughs) Musical theater, I find embarrassing. (laughs) Like when like people, I have a distinct memory as a child with my mom. I was sick and I was watching a Disney film with my mom and they started singing like (laughs) the the plot. And And I turned to my mother. The plot started singing. Yeah. I turned to my mother and I said, you don't, you don't have to watch this. Like I was just like, it just. Embarrassed for her. Yeah. It just, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, Okay. And you know, like. Musical theater, not for you. Not for me and really no type of theater is for me, I think. Um, There
1: is a point at which theater does cross over into weird capital A art, which you do sometimes. I do. So
2: I am more interested in the weird capital A art than the sort of like banal um, Uh, sort of plays. I wish the best for all people involved, but I find it fundamentally uncomfortable to sit Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. through it. And, um, yeah, and I just think it's best that like people not try to convince me to enjoy it.
1: (laughs) that is not going to be the purpose of this episode, but we are going to learn things about theater and performance and just like crossing the threshold from theater to weird art.
2: Eh, We're going to get a little weird at the end. We're going to get weird. A little bit weird. Uh, I do like getting weird. Yeah. So
1: performing stories is a pretty universal part of human culture, whether it's within a small family group, part of the social fabric of a community, a ritual, a large public event at any scale. it's it's Storytelling is fundamental to humans. That's how we understand the world is usually through stories. And so today is going to be a little bit of a grab bag of aspects of theater within different cultures and through time. So we're going to explore... The history of theater traditions in different places, the structures where some of those performances took
2: place, um, the role of theater in different societies. Okay, so for the purposes of today's episode, how are we defining theater? Uh, We're going to use these two broad criteria, first being public performances of real, like reenacted or uh, fictive. Uh, sort of imagined scenarios. Um, And then the second criterion being these performances would take place in a dedicated or at least consistent space. So we're not going to be covering improv everywhere. Um, Boo. (laughs) Thumbs down from Anna. Um, So performers may use combinations of gesture, speech, song, music, and dance to tell the audience a story. Often, but not always, elements of art like painted and constructed scenery add to the experience. Uh, The word theater is derived from the ancient Greek theatron, which is a place for viewing um, itself from theaomai. to see, or to watch, or to observe. Uh, As you may already know, most Western theater borrows heavily from the classical Greek theater tradition. Uh, We're going to start with that, but we aren't going to cover it exhaustively because it could be its own podcast. And I could talk a lot about that because that is the one type of theater that I am into. I am a huge Euripides stan. Big fan of the... Um, tragedies of Euripides. Surprising, no one. Um, <laughs> so we're going to be looking at theater well outside the classical you know, European, uh, world too, do not worry. But the earliest form of theater that we know, um, uh, from ancient Greece developed in Athens. A lot of other things in Athenian society were very performative, such as festivals, religious rituals, political speeches, public athletic contests, the symposia, where Athenian bros drank wine and like wine-splained things to one another. Um, among other stuff, uh, the list goes on. Athenian tragedy built on this very well-established tradition of performance. So in this context, tragedy has a really specific meaning. Um, It's a type of drama that's performed with song and dance, um, describing the changes in fortune, usually from Bad to worse of a character. Athenian tragedies were performed in late March or early April at an annual state religious festival in honor of Dionysus, the uh, god of nature, the arts, and like wine and ecstatic pleasures. Um so these presentations this whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. So these presentations took the form of a contest between three playwrights who presented their works on three successive days. Each playwright offered a series of three tragedies and a concluding comic piece called a satyr play, uh like just to take the edge off with like lots of butt jokes and like slapstick tragedies, etymal, the word tragedies, etymological roots are interesting. Uh, the Greek term translates literally to goat song. Uh, this might be either because a goat was awarded as a prize to the author of the most popular play each year, or it may relate to a dance around a ritually sacrificed goat. Unclear. Either
1: way, the goat is the one experiencing the tragedy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So we follow. So um, and also... So we talk about like comedy and tragedy, like those are two. Mm-hmm. Just like how um, a Greek tragedy follows a, um, it, it follows a formula. So too does comedy, um, yeah. and so you have like each of your acts. Like there are things; they're familiar stories. Uh, usually, they're familiar mm-hmm. stories. It's not sort of like, um, like a new. <laughs> Like they weren't just busting out Dune. Yes, they, we didn't we didn't have Dune. Um but but it's sort of looking at uh characters from um from from myth or religion um and looking at their experiences and sort of having um there is a plot and there are things that you learn that you sort of explore about human nature and emotions um and as you watch things get worse and worse and worse (laughs) um and and then the like what? The, like the. I mean, there's a resolution at some point. Well, no, like you, you have what like the Deus Deus ex Machina. Oh, it ex comes machina, from yeah. like sort of comes from where you will have like a god come out and be like, I think Hello. did we all learn a lesson here today? So there are things that the viewer will go into it expecting because it like needs mm-hmm. to hit certain beats. It needs to have certain um uh there there are certain sp- sort of benchmarks throughout the, the presentation, mm-hmm. but what it does within that time and how it makes you feel and, um, can vary greatly. Um, uh, mm-hmm. so in poetics, uh, which was written by Aristotle around, uh, 335 BCE, um, uh, this was sort of like a, he was being a bit of a, a dramaturg, so he was looking at like <laughs> dramatic theory. Uh, he wrote about everything, plenty of time on his hands. Yeah, just um, what a versatile, sure
1: mind." Sure. Sure. Nothing had been written yet. <laughs> nothing had been thought about
2: yet.: Yeah, He, he, he was the first to do some, room to think his thoughts. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, so um, he took a stab at defining tragedy as, quote tragedy is then an enactment of a deed that is important and complete and of a certain magnitude by means of language enriched with ornaments each used separately in the different parts of the play it is enacted not merely recited and through pity and fear it effects relief catharsis to such and similar emotions end quote. And so like, it lets you feel your feelings. So catharsis is a big part of it too. And so catharsis is a Greek word. Um, and so it's that sense of, of release. That's why I love Euripides so much because you have, uh, so, so the play Hippolytus is, um, one of my favorite works of r- written word. Um, uh, and something that I, I have like a sort of something of a personal connection to, not that I, I know him or anything, but like it is, it's like, <laughs> it's like very particular, it like re- resonates with me in very particular ways. Um, but there is something there, there is something that is so also some like great ace representation in Hippolytus, hey. uh, the titular Hippolytus. Um, but... There's something so, like, there's, there's just these, like, very strong feelings of, like, resignation and desperation and hopelessness, um, that's, that's sort of, um, characterized and expressed by the character of Phaedra, that you, that, that there is this, like, sense of release of, of catharsis, because you can really, like, really get down in there and, like, feel these, like, uh, sort of, you can either watch a character feel these very dark emotions that you would like to avoid, that you aren't really seeking out in your life. Emotions, well, yeah. but, but but like more than like more powerful than uncomfortable, like like things that you don't painful that you, yeah that you like want to not feel, but you have this opportunity to sort of like get down in there and feel them and sort of like take them for a walk. Um, and then through the edge of the, there's like this sense of release in the play. And so like, that is, that is what makes the catharsis powerful because it's, it is doing what I think art is supposed to do is to let you feel things in a contrived environment So that you don't have to feel them in your real life, like you're like for yourself. Um, Yeah. but yeah, That makes sense. I love the idea of of drama
1: as a way to sort of air out all of your emotions that you might not use as often. Yeah. So that so that they don't either bottle up and make you more miserable or so that you I don't know, can you lose
2: the ability to sort of it it sort of um, use it or lose it? It's sort of maybe, but it sort of also kind of defangs them to a bit of like, if it's something you're afraid to feel, um, then like if you're feeling it in a, in something that like at the end you close it or you go home or it's over and everybody comes out and they bow. It's self-contained. Yeah, that you don't. And so maybe it will make it a little less scary to feel in your real life. Um, oh, this is just edging closer and closer to a therapy
1: session. <laughs> oh, no. Well, <laughs> this is oh, in a good way.
2: <laughs> I should feel feelings more. I don't recommend it. But because tragedy plus time equals comedy, but not in a Greek dramaturgy <laughs> sense. No, I was trying to make a joke about Greek history. <laughs> we see some of the, the first comedic works other than satire plays um, a bit later than the first tragedies. Um, So Greek comedy is much more like satire or social commentary uh, or Twitter, like just sort of like it's, and it's also like kind of, it's also kind of like gross and absurd, which fine. (laughs) Like (laughs) there's two, yeah, there there are actually two
1: phases of Greek comedy is old and new. And one of them is much more like phallic and, Gross out than the other. And I think it's old. And then people, maybe people got tired of it being gross. And then <laughs> new comedy comes along.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but perhaps the most enduring aspect of Greek theater is the space in which it was performed. Here's an excerpt from one of the um, Heilbrunn Timeline of Art History essays um, available on the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art's website. This one written by Colette Hemingway. Quote, The Greek theater consisted essentially of the orchestra, the flat dancing floor of the chorus, and the theatron, the actual structure of the theater building. Since theaters in antiquity were frequently modified and rebuilt, the surviving remains offered little clear evidence of the nature of the theatrical space available to the classical dramatists in the 6th and 5th centuries B.C., Vase paintings depicting Greek comedy from the late 5th and early 4th centuries BC uh, suggest that the stage stood about a meter high with a flight of steps in the center. The actors entered from either side and from a central door in the skene, which also housed the Ekiklema, a wheeled platform with sets of scenes, a mechane or crane, located at the right end of the stage was used to hoist gods and heroes through the air and onto the stage end quote. So that McKenna, that is the McKenna, um, deus from, X. like <laughs> X, which the deus would come. Yeah. And so that, so,
1: um, so I just love the idea that like Zeus or whatever is just hoisted from, well,
2: no, that's, but that's is. what, that's, that's what would happen is that you'd have like, so, um, just to like, Uh, sort of clarify this a bit we talk about the chorus like where they dance so what happens is like the play starts and i think like often like the chorus comes out and they're like here's what's up like they're like kind of a prologue right well like so so the scene setting the point of so the chorus is a group of people and it like i think um in hippolytus i think it's like old ladies and it's usually like a group of it's usually a group of like older folks or perhaps children or like just a group of women but they're the ones who kind of like come in and like get it going and they're like here's what's up like like you missed like we're now in we're in thebes and like this is happening and she did this and this god is mad this isn't going to go great. And then they like toodle off and then Sony comes out and they're like, ah, I have angered a God. And you like get into it. And then, um, they, they sort of, the, I keep like wiggling my hand, like the chorus, like dances in, like they're a bunch of crabs, like just sort of like, they, they come in and, <laughs> Wait, they it's, and it's and the, so yeah. they, they come out while the sets are being changed. And so they're there to sort of like recap what happened, fill you in on other stuff because you'll have, um, you have, it's, I mean, it's a play, it's dialogue. And so here is sort of like reinforcing, um, like, Reinforcing uh, Phaedra's feelings and reinforcing uh, sort of the historical backdrop for what's happening, the kind of um, mythic backdrop and just sort of building tension to say like here are why the stakes are so high they're going to continue to heighten we don't really love the way this is going and then they like go off again and like they they come out between each one and kind of they're the the sort of like the moralizing backbone of the whole thing to sort of guide the to guide the viewer to a conclusion because you could watch it and be like this is very easily avoided. Like they're trying to, like, it can't be like, maybe just don't anger the gods. Yeah. And so then at the end, and then they um, would have missed the bigger point. Yeah. And then at the end you have like a God come out and, and be like, Oh, like this character is, is my, you know, is one of my beloved mortals. Um, I'm going to intervene here or come out and say like, this is why you don't mess with Poseidon, and and just sort of like they they come out at the end, and because they are a god or they are, and as if you know you had like Heracles or something, you have like a hero that sort of comes out, like yeah. it's sort of they're the ones like coming out being like on high, and it's you know okay. it's impressive and you know all this stuff, and so it's, sure. um, but that's that's what the so that's why you've got the section for the chorus. To dance because mm-hmm. it'll be, you know, between like five and dozens of people coming out and, and doing the, I think that happens like in Broadway stuff too, where you've got like it does. the
1: chorus well, come, come out. I mean, there's and like a direct they, line from this stuff because like, um, in Shakespeare, I know you, you're not a Shakespeare guy, but <laughs> also in, not in Shakespeare, Shakespeare, I know, emphatically not, but th- this kind of formulaic formula
0: oh. <laughs> this formulaic
1: process mm. uh, I'm a writer of of the play like going through the the beats um very much happens in basically all of Shakespeare's comedies at least or and in the tragedies too like Romeo and Juliet starts off with a character saying two houses were fighting the people in them not the houses and here's here's where we're at so, yeah, I mean, Shakespeare very much and, and later playwrights, too, in the European tradition, um, very much follow that pattern. And, yeah, so does musical theater to some extent. There's
2: there's a chorus and they sing about what's going on, but it's yeah. much less. And they um, kind of that's the role to sort of like foreground the action, because also like it's it's also a practical thing that you've got like 40 people doing this in unison. They're easier to hear than one person. It's true. Being like, oh,
1: although you know, like Greek amphitheaters are designed designed to be to amplify sound, but not.
2: But I mean, not, they, but also you got people murmuring, be like, why to a say? point? What do they say? Yeah, uh, like, my mom at the movies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's enough time spent on classical theater, including all of my surprises for Anna. No, know, me knowing things about. Greek I'm never surprised when you know
1: things. I'm always delighted. And enjoy them. Because it <laughs> I enriches my, my experience. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well.
2: Where else are we going, oh, can I Take me somewhere else. Mm.
1: Take me somewhere less. Let me whisk you away. That somewhere else is India, where drama has also had a long history intertwined with religion and social participation. The roots of drama in what is today India can be traced back to the Rig Veda, which is a document. Uh, compiled between 1200 and 1500 BCE. And it's it's a collection of Sanskrit texts and it contains a number of hymns in the form of dialogues or even scenes with multiple characters. There are also hymns that make use of other literary forms such as animal fables. Slight digression um, because while it's very, it's closely linked in terms of a performative tradition, um, Indian classical dance and Indian classical drama are, are two different things, but there's a wonderful, um, couple of, I'm so sorry, Amber, but they're TikTok videos, but I'm going to link them in the show notes. Um, there are two dancers, two classically trained Indian dancers, um, doing depictions of animals as they are portrayed in Dance. So, a classical dance, Indian classical dance is very formulaic. And so, there are certain movements and certain sort of shapes that you make with your hands and body that to an observer who, who knows the tradition would go, Oh, that's a deer, or like, Oh, that's a snake. And I just huh. think it's, it's, it, the, the two videos are really lovely. So, I just wanted to share them. So, one similarity between ancient Indian and ancient Greek theater is the use of masks. Ceramic and plaster. So we're not suggesting any sort of diffusion theories here. Just masks. They're part of theater. They help you kind of s- sell the fact that a person is performing as a different character. Be like, I'm someone s- else now.
2: Yeah. Whoop. We had this in my that was the in my bystander intervention the class. We had, the guy would put a hat on and that's when we knew he was a, a yeah. harasser. The harasser And then hat. we took the hat off. He was... The facilitator. Normal Dave. Hat on. Um, Racist. Hat off. Facilitator.
1: Well, hats off to that guy. In ancient Athens, theatrical masks were made with a paper mache-ish method using strips of linen cloth fortified by plaster, flower glue, and fish glue. (laughs) Elmer's fish glue. And then those masks would have been painted. They would have been more intensely colored or darker if they were... Male characters and Mm -hmm. pale was for female characters. So even a spectator in the nosebleed seats of the amphitheater could work out who was who, more or less. Yeah, I wonder how loud you would have had to project. I imagine. Somebody knows Greek actors. Somebody, I'm sure someone knows. So someone Someone has done a model. Yeah, Uh, masks also had. Uh, often had a helmet-like feature covered with wool that was then colored and styled as hair. And in the masks, the mouth was left open. So you may have seen the, you know, tragedy comedy masks. Those are from Greek drama. Frowny for tragedy, smiley for comedy. So in India, the history of masks dates back to the Mesolithic. Excavations have revealed small hollow masks in the Indus Valley civilization, which was around from 2500 BCE to 1200 BCE. At the site of Chirand in Bihar, a northern state of India, a terracotta mask belonging to the 4th century was unearthed. The Natya Sastra, which is from the 8th century BCE, which is a treatise on music and drama, mentions masks or Partishirsa, which seem to be very similar to their Greek counterparts. A note on the Natya Shastra. Uh, it's attributed to an ancient sage named Bharata Muni. And the first complete compilation is dated to between 200 BCE and 200 CE. But there are estimates of its actual antiquity that vary between 500 BCE and 500 CE. So who knows? Not me. The text, though, is a weighty one. It consists of 36 chapters with a cumulative total of 6,000 poetic verses describing performance and arts. Or performance arts, as it actually says in the script. The subjects covered by the treatise include dramatic composition, structure of a play, and the construction of a stage to host it, genres of acting, body movements, Makeup and costumes, the role and goals of an art director, the musical scales, musical instruments, and the integration of music with art performance. I'll talk a little bit more about the music in a little bit. Much like in ancient Greece, in ancient India, early theater masks were made of wood and clay. That combination was super heavy and it made breathing really hard. So you see later versions that are just ceramic or just like cloth plaster like the Greek ones, uh, a bit lighter, a bit breezier. So I'm going to quote here from a paper by Guri Nilakantan. Quote, the mask is first made up of the clay that is found on the banks of the Karake River. The artist fixes the clay and lets it cool down to harden on a plank. This process is called the matagara or making of the clay. Then muslin gauze is added along with paper. The mask is then scrubbed off with the help of a sharp instrument called carny, and it is polished. So the the clay is a form. It's the form of a face, and then you shape the mask over it, and then you let it dry and peel it off. And the muslin and paper and glue version is what the mask is, not the clay. It is then painted in flat pastel colors stylization being given on the eyebrows and mouth. The flat pastel colors give it frankness, simplicity, and boldness. The mask maker avoids realistic identification and creates stylized people and animals. So it's not trying to say like, this is that guy. It's more just like, this is a guy. So here's an example of a Sanskrit comedy plot of a play titled The Little Clay Cart. One of the early, So this is one of the earliest known Sanskrit plays that there's textual evidence for, and it was composed by Shudraka in the 2nd century BCE. Rife with romance, sex, royal intrigue, and comedy, the juicy plot of the play has numerous twists and turns. The main story is about a young man named Charudatta and his love for Vasanta Sena, a rich courtesan. Their love affair is complicated by a royal courtier who is also attracted to Vasanta Sena. The plot is further complicated by thieves and mistaken identities and thus making it hilarious and entertaining and twists and turns. This is also the plot of every Shakespeare comedy. Yeah. Same formula. It's
2: not not doing anything for me. So I mentioned
1: the music that accompanies these performances and um, there's going to be another link in the show notes at thedirtpod.com where it's a walkthrough of Indian classical music and Carnatic singing. Um, and it is specifically Raga and Tala. Amber, do you know what those things are? Nope. Okay. So Raga is a vocal improvisation based on different musical scales that happens in Indian classical music and it's all improvised. So like basically the musicians are kind of playing a, a background track, a backing track and the vocalist is singing, but they are in in kind of a similar way to how um, Hebrew. If you're reading from the Torah, there are little marks that denote certain melodies because melody is a mnemonic device mm-hmm. and helps you kind of remember. In a very similar way, um, the the raga singers um, they never really sing it the same way twice, but there are foundations on which they build their improvisation that are the same each time, and Tala is a rhythmic, um, a a form of of rhythmic, I want to say notation, but it's not, it's vocal. Hey, hi, hello, it's Anna in the future editing this. I'm going to drop in a little example from the video that we will link in the show notes so that you can get a sense of what I'm talking about because it's one of those things that is really easier to hear and understand than to listen to me explaining poorly. This is from an episode of Now Hear This, which is a show about great performances on PBS. So, here we go. So, can you show me a tal? Yes, Yes. but before that, I just want to show you uh, what makes the tal, the syllables of tabla. If I say na, if I say tun, if I say te-te,
0: ke, then both hand dha,
2: so are these just vocalizations or are they actual words? There are words. The, the, not so, the tala. So Let's,
1: tala is just syllables for the percussion percussionist to teach or but, to but
2: raga. Like they are. There's it's. it's It's not like the, it's not like the last minute of a Beyonce song where like, (laughs) you know what what I'm saying? Like it's, it's it's not just where she makes sure she got all the notes in words. No, they are, to my, to my
1: understanding, they are singing words and the, the way that they improvise and the scales that they choose to use, um, are very closely linked to the emotional, import that whatever they're saying needs to have for the performance. So like there's a scale that's, that's, uh, specifically like the tone is like plaintive yearning. It is tonally conveying information along with the words. I thought that was cool. That's very interesting. Very cool. And, and I clearly, I'm not an expert about this. I'm just an enthusiast, but I think most common, form now of of this kind of performance is called Harikatha. And so that's a composite art form composed of storytelling, poetry, music, drama, dance, and philosophy. So this is most prevalent in Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, Maharashtra, Karnataka, and Tamil Nadu. Specifically, Harikatha is specifically a religiously themed performance. So any Hindu religious theme can be the subject, Um, it used to be a really, really popular medium of entertainment and helped transmit cultural, educational and religious values to the masses. So it was sort of a, um, I don't want to say that these were like morality plays, because that's not really what was going on, but it was in the way that a lot of, I think, early uh, theater was, was sort of either reinforcing social mores, social structures, or, or doing that through religion. And I think that it's a way of ensuring that these concepts get passed to the multitudes when you don't necessarily have an entirely literate population.
2: Well, but it's also a way to kind of shore up social mores because you're Mm -hmm. in a, because you're in a group setting. And so you're seeing a performance of something and you're looking around to like gauge where, where everybody else is at with it. And it's a way to be like, oh, okay, this is normative behavior versus mm-hmm. non norm, like sort of like abnormal behavior or antisocial behavior in the context of this society. And so it's a way to reinforce. And that's, that's still something that drama does. And that's even like, I mean, like Think for about sure. Hamilton of sort of like, <laughs> like Hamilton definitely like, I haven't uh, seen Sort of affected social mores of like having this the the approach that uh, its author had and sort of what it was putting forward and sort of the Mm -hmm. the selective use of different visual and musical uh, choices that came Mm -hmm. to this sort of it established like a a sort of normative uh, sort of baseline approach to a subject um but that's something that um yeah that's something that comes through is just sort of like when you look at when you watch something happening to a character and there is an element of if there's anything like like punishment or bad luck or retribution or reward like that is something that is reinforcing like Morality, like an approach to morals of, and because, you know, morality is very subjective. Mm -hmm. It's socially informed and it's socially Mm -hmm. constructed. And so having stuff in large group environments like this is helpful uh, because you are feeding off of one another and um, sort of like witnessing other people buy into it.
1: Yeah. Well, let's take a quick ad break here and then move on to the second act.
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, CulturoMedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com.
2: We are back. I flipped. I flipped the lights, so you knew. Get back to your seats. And now you're Finish back peeing. in your seats. Sometimes uh, theatrical performances don't feature human actors on stage. Oh no. Oh, okay. So we're not getting into the weird art. <laughs> section no, no, end. no. It's just um, that the humans aren't on the stage. Ah. Okay. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, so we're not gonna be talking about like animal stuff uh, we are talking about shadow puppetry uh, so this is a style of performance that has many many forms in many different places uh, traditions involving shadow puppetry uh, are especially prevalent in si- uh, Southeast Asia and South Asia uh, so so you've got India all the way over into the um, the maritime southeast asia um and then north up into uh china so um this is something that i know of best as being uh like a, a balinese traditional art um and so you've got so when you have performances um there's the 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 balinese you know are you familiar with the bells like the Balinese I think, bells. Yeah. It's it's very it's very beautiful. Um it doesn't sound it Imagine has like it's a different ethereal. Yeah. And it, yeah. it has like a different register than mm-hmm. um sort of like um your your like traditional like Western music, as sure. it's as it's de- described. Um so so it's got that going on. Then you've got your your shadow puppets, and this is something that um the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco, um, where I'm reporting live from. san Francisco I'm in San Francisco for work uh, that's why no one has seen me unless they work with me um, so the Asian Art Museum in San francisco um like most museums um acquired a lot of its um collection from like bequests from um rich people and like yeah, people who who yeah, who collected things because they tra- they traveled to the continent of Asia for work usually like mm. some kind mm-hmm. of some kind of thing that made them a lot of money um, and while visiting they picked up suvis and so this is a lot of like expensive suvis there's a pretty substantial collection at the Asian and there's a lot of them in a display and the vibes are so bad, like that. This is my anecdote. <laughs> it's
1: just like, uh, yeah. To to <laughs> provide some context for this, earlier today I texted Amber. How do you feel about puppet-based theater? Trying to gauge whether oh, this would be. And like, my
2: answer was triggering. When it when it's done well, I don't care for it. And when it's not done well, I don't care for it for other reasons. <laughs> And so, that's, um, but yep. the, it is that's, something so that's that, we are. The, I mean, as, yeah, as, <laughs> as objects,
1: yes. they're really cool, but, but the vibes, the,
2: the, the vibes are so bad. <laughs> just, um, and I'm, I'm like, I think the vibes would be different if I were like, like that they, they have a purpose. The context in of
1: the ones that you specifically saw. Yeah, mm. That's, that's what was making Mm-mm. the vibes. Yeah.
2: I just like, I just think that that's a great way to get like poltergeisted. Just sure. Like, <laughs> just asking for it. This um, is my my position on like antiquities trafficking. <laughs> it's just haunted. Inviting terrible vibes into your your home. Um so as mm. one might imagine, there are many claims about the origins of this art of shadow puppets. Um some of the earliest mentions of shadow puppets um, that your authors could find, uh, come from Han Dynasty China. So i to quote now from um, an essay by um, uh, Wu Jian'an. Um, this is on Google Arts and Culture. And um, uh, Wu is a contemporary Chinese artist and professor at the Central Academy of Fine Arts in China. Quote, according to Book of Han, the Empresses and Imperial Affines,
1: Caffeine? I don't know.
2: Yeah. Uh, so this this is this dates to roughly uh, 111 CE. Emperor Wu of the Han Dynasty never forgot his wife Li, who died at a young age. An alchemist, Xiao uh, Wang, claimed that he could summon her spirit. He lit candles, set up a tent, uh, and laid a table of fine wine and food at night. This is how to get me too. Uh, Emperor Wu was requested to sit inside another tent. Yes. Yeah, so you
1: you're, if you're asked to sit in a tent, make sure there's not another tent next to that tent.
2: Okay. This is good to know. <laughs> um, where he saw what appeared to be the figure of Lee. Apparently Lee came and sat in the tent before slowly departing. Emperor Wu was not allowed to approach the figure. In his sorrow he wrote a poem. Was that you? I stood up to look at you, yet you never came. End. Hmm. Hmm. So was that that's, hmm. uh so was that the origin story? Maybe. Um in any so this was sort of This spectral figure that he saw, Mm -hmm. um, the first shadow in a neighboring tent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in any case, shadow puppetry can be much more intricate than doing like, like woof, woof, uh, uh, with your, your hands and a flashlight. You know, the dog shape, the dog shape that everybody knows how to do.
1: We're both doing it.
2: Yeah, we're both doing it. (laughs) Um, so the shadow puppets used in china are typically semi-transparent leather plates to which semi-transparent dyes are applied as a result the the shadows cast onto the screen have colors to make the shadow props animal skins are pressed engraved and dyed to form characters scenery animals and whatever else the story requires so shadow puppetry played a big role in the spread of Buddhism. Um, so it's a way to teach the public efficiently and without the need for widespread literacy. So this is not just another form of, th- it's a form of drama. Yeah. Um, so another place where shadow puppet theater has historically been really popular is Turkey. So Turkey, like, like Anatolia or Turkey, like Turkic populations, uh, v- Turkey, like the Ottoman Empire. Okay. Okay. Um, so Anna found a source at one point in her research that briefly mentioned a Turkic envoy visiting an emperor of the Sui dynasty, roughly the 6th century CE. Um, and that shadow plays were performed as a way for the emperor to show off what his city had to offer. So maybe if, if we've got this sort of um, the... The Turkic envoy that arrived uh, During the Sui dynasty Like maybe that guy liked it Brought it home It caught on eh, I don't, know. Um, no, I don't so know Anyway Turkish shadow puppetry Or Karayoz Yeah Karayoz Turkic languages Beyond me uh, Seems to be a bit more On the goofy side of the art So um, now quoting Not f- always Okay. Uh, so now, quoting uh, from Wikipedia, a more body comedy tradition of shadow play was widespread throughout the Ottoman Empire, uh, possibly since the late 14th century. So it was centered around the contrasting interaction between the figures of uh, Kara Yoz and Hachivat, an unprincipled peasant and his fussy, educated companion. Ah, uh, it's us. Which one am I? I'm the unprincipled peasant. I am fussy, huh? You are my fussy, educated companion. <laughs> so I'm, I'll take it. I am unprincipled. Um, together with other characters, they represented all the major social groups in Ottoman culture. The theaters had an enormous following and would take place in the coffee houses and in rich private houses and even performed before the sultan. Every quarter of the city had its own Karagos.
1: Which uh, the, is the type of theater as well. It's the character name, but then also so it's, this type
2: of theater is Caragos as well. And then the space in which it happened was also. So this if, is like if we had theater. So if we went to the theater in a theater about a guy named theater, correct. that's what's happening here. Okay. That's what's happening. Okay. So the Karajos Theater consisted of a three-sided booth covered with a curtain printed with branches and roses and a white cotton screen by like that's roughly three feet by four, which was inserted in the front. The performance had a three-man orchestra. Um, burr, 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 burr. Who sat at the foot of a small raised stage where they would play for the audience. The show would start when the puppet master lit the oil lamp. The show could be introduced by a singer accompanied by a tambourine player. The background and scenery would sometimes include moving shifts, ships, riders moving on horseback, swaying palm trees, and even dragons. The sound Swing effects dragons. including included songs and various voices. So now that we are reaching, we've reached the end of the second act, Anna and I have had a fight. Will things be resolved? We just don't know. We're going to take another break and then we're going to come back for act three.
0: Hey fans of APN podcasts. We've got lots of designs over at our T public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop, that's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link.
2: We're back. Are we going on a hero's journey? No, we're just doing a three-act structure. We're in a movie. It's drama. Okay. Well, before we get to the surprise twist ending,
1: uh, I want to recommend and read an excerpt from a paper titled The Roots of African Theater, Ritual and Orality in the Pre-Colonial Period by Usmane Diakate and Hansel Ndumbe Eyo. So a couple notes before I start. Uh, Africa is a huge continent full of many different cultures and communities with their own traditions, and those traditions often mix and spread, but African culture is by no means monolithic. So this article explores theatrical roots pretty broadly and also pulls from the fact that especially in West Africa, musical storytelling and oral history are are huge cultural elements. So I just I thought it's, you know, um, really interesting to see how groups from wherever and whenever that perform their history, how they do that and how that gets worked into culture over time and how it's now expressed in, in modern theater. That is sort of claimed by these cultures and places. Um, So, quote: the term theater itself has diverse, complex, contradictory, and even antagonistic connotations in Africa. As well, the study of dramatic phenomena involves diverse approaches. Even in the West, the word theater often denotes very different realities, and what is meant by theater in one country is not always the same as what is meant in others. It would be unwise, therefore, to expect to find in ancient black Africa types of theatrical performances analogous to European forms, although connections to ancient Greek drama are regularly noted by researchers. Rather than referring to the cultural traditions of Europe, then, it seems more sensible to look at the evolution of African culture from within its own unique dynamic and from within its own history. The fact is that Africa is prodigiously rich in rituals of all kinds. Some are in a lighter vein and give rise to comic expression, but the great majority has their origins in religious expression and magic, intended as a discourse with supernatural forces in order to channel them, control them, appease them, or honor them, and to ensure the survival and equilibrium of the community, rituals were, and still are, shields defending the community against evil forces." Through gestures and actions believed to be endowed with supernatural powers, these rituals enable society to reaffirm, perpetuate, and commemorate aspects of existence and beliefs deemed essential for the community's physical, moral, and spiritual health. While it is also true that ritual and theater are not the same thing, it is evident that theater, of all the arts, is the one most apt to use the same elements as those found in ritual. The root here is religion, in this case, animism which permeates all activities and constitutes the basis for a whole network of customs. African thought is steeped in animism, which places humanity at the center of its concerns. God in the African universe needs people in order to be fully realized. It is people, by their sacrifices, their cultural manifestations, and their incantations, who give the gods meaning. In this way, each human being, in conjunction with his or her ancestors, participates in divine creativity. Such activities are performed in ritual ceremonies by recreating and representing, as Senegalese poet and philosopher Leopold Sedar-Senghor has pointed out, a mythic temporal dimension through artistic techniques, utilizing masks, songs, poetry, and dance, in short, through theater. These are all the appropriate channels necessary to ensure communication with the divinities and to convey to them humanity's grievances and praises. End quote. So that was a long quote from quite a long article. Um, it's a worthwhile read. It'll be in the show notes. But I, I liked the insight of um, creating a mythic temporal dimension. Like mm-hmm. theater, a, a dramatic performance or a comedic one, exists in a little pocket of its own. And I think this is kind of what you were saying up at the top of the show about sort of allowing you to air out your feelings and, and sort of mm-hmm. process feelings in a safe space. It's that little, that little pocket dimension where the theater or whatever it is where it occurs. And then when the performance is over, it's done. That dimension is sort of put away.
2: Yeah. And I I, I think that that like fictive dimension, sort of like the, like that rate, that reality, I think it has a really important cosmological um value um because it is like a part of your world it's not necessarily a part like it i think that there that there is an argument to be made for that being a part of reality that it is a part of your reality like it is a you know we have like yeah, if- the the domains of you know we we have like our interior world like this is something that's kind of like a shared interiority um well yeah if, but- if
1: reality is something that's perceived then if you are, even if you are imagining something as as prompted by fiction, it's yeah. still something you are perceiving, you are experiencing well, it. Even and if it is something that
2: informs in your brain. shared realities too. Mm-hmm. Because if it's something that's teaching you empathy or teaching you mm-hmm. confidence or bravery or sort of conviction, uh, I think that that's that's really valuable. And and I want to I want to give. I want to ask our listeners to sort of like sit with that of thinking about like how something that one might find attributed to like traditional societies or ancient societies or something as if it's something different from what we are today. Um, Thinking about things like thinking about like genres of film as being sort of these, these other dimensions. Um, And if you have like, there's a whole world of, like fan fiction, uh, just that you have these dimensions that exist of a separate reality that is informed by its, it's own a world rules. shared by, yeah. And so you have, um, you have like extended universes of mm-hmm. different, different media properties. But you also have people who are engaging with that, um, and I think that that's that's something that that maybe folks should think about as uh, something that we that it's a human thing. It's a human thing and it's something that um, is not bounded by like modern versus pre-modern kind of ideas., yeah. it's just the the definitions that are put forward don't necessarily um, include us as as people <laughs> of like of, of being part of the same thing that we are claiming to study. So, yeah. which brings us to the epilogue. Anna and I worked it out. We've resolved each other. We've resolved each other. We resolved our, <laughs> our differences. We're ready for a you know, we're gonna do an epilogue. This is after the credits or whatever. I don't know. Um and now we have two archaeologists here talking about performance. But what about the archaeologists who perform performance? Eh? Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's a slightly different interpretation of the term than the average kind of stage play. But that's right. We're getting into a subset of archaeological theory called performance archaeology. So, it's time to get a little bit weird. Just a um, little. We could also do, <laughs> plenty of people do, performative archaeology. There are people who perform archaeology by like doing their little research and doing their little presentations and doing their little keynotes but they aren't actually producing anything (laughs) they're just sort of like doing it as job so we're not talking about that yeah I I said performative when I should have said archaeology I wasn't sure if it was performance
1: um, no I'm badly written
2: um theory i don't know if if that's no it was a badly written line by me (laughs) ah okay Ah. one way that we access the past as human beings is through memory um and so this is sort of thinking about stories as memory on like a system scale um so if we look at like humanity or a society as a system sort of the the way that the system keeps its memory is through stories is that, yeah. is that working? Is this yeah, doing it's anything a, for a you?
1: collective
2: archive of experience. Yeah, through, that through is, stories. that is, um, uh, is deposited and, and stored and categorized and cataloged through things like, perf- through like discrete units of performance. So it's songs, <laughs> stories, um, plays, those sorts of things so performances can be seen both in the archaeological record um, as well as in modern enactments or rituals so the landscape itself is an integral portion of performance memory Uh, so the space in which you are doing it the um, the the way the light might hit you the, the ways that sort of Uh, bird song may factor in or the sound of a body of water moving Um, things like echoes Um, all of those things inform um, like inform the experience and inform sort of the the memory access (laughs) components of it (laughs) Um, but what do we mean by performance here and um, have we said that word enough times in the past sentences uh, which has been convenient because Anna keeps clicking in the script and I see the dirt podcast like blocking Sorry. sections of the script uh, but usually performance is behind it um, so this is as long time listeners might have spotted already a branch of post processual theory especially when I talked about like bringing in the landscape so this is this is very post-processual um and it's a way of thinking about the past that has much more to do with getting at lived experiences and perception rather than um cold Data data points um yeah because like processual archaeology thought that the archaeological record is a record of Basically, the, like the residues of human behavior over time, um, that is data. So that is something that through a processual archaeological approach, um, that is what you are looking at. The best you can do to know what happened in the past is to see where people went what behaviors they, and so it's, it's very long-term. So it's thinking about like, that's why looking at sort of spatial analysis and looking at, um, residues from, uh, Flint napping residues from butchery residues from these sorts of the, the big activities of your life, sort of how, what you're spending, what the most people are doing, or the most time is spent doing, you find these, these signatures of past behavior. Um, and that's as That's the best we can do. The best we can do is, is reconstruct what their world looked like to them and sort of the, the, the kind of functional aspects of it. How did they feed themselves? How did they shelter themselves? Um, moving away from that, you start to think, what did they, what was it like? What, what was the experience of preparing and consuming a meal? Why did they go to these places? Um, what, what made these places preferable to other places? Um, how did they connect with one another and the world that they inhabited? Um, so we've got a definition by Michael Shanks, who is a guy who writes archaeological theory um, and has published quite a bit on these ideas. Um, it seems here that um, this is the, Star- the Stargate show. and There was an actor named Michael Shanks. Yeah, which saying? the
1: anthropologist.
2: Performance archaeology takes a cross-disciplinary approach with social archaeology to studying the things, narratives, or artifacts that remain of ancient theater, music, dance, art, hist- art history, and oral tradition in order to, quote, model the past, end quote. So, um, yeah, Michael Shanks wrote, I think, social archaeology. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what does modeling the past look like? archaeologically uh, so what kinds of material culture give us insight into what ancient performance looked and sounded like so it's time for us to learn some new words we've got idiophones phones for now, idiots <laughs> so these are instruments that make noise when the instrument itself vibrates so these <laughs> are uh sistra cymbals, rattles you know stuff that you
1: you hold stuff that you can carry stuff that's
2: like it's
1: not a drum it's yeah
2: um so okay. we next we've got membranophones so these are instruments that make a noise with a vibrating membrane which is amplified by some kind of sound box so this sounds like drum aerophones uh these are wind instruments So the oldest known flute is around 40,000 years old, and it's made from a vulture bone. So our history as a flute playing species is pretty rich. So it only took 40,000 years to reach the apotheosis of flute music, which is Lizzo. So this is 40,000 years. We got vulture bone. 40,000 years in the making. Lizzo. Beautiful. Uh, History. We've got Mm. chordophones. My mom still got one of those. Uh, no, uh-huh. these are stringed instruments like the harp or the lyre. No, specifically the <laughs> the, the instrument that was found at or
1: it's called it, a it's lyre, a, right?
2: A lyre has the soundbox behind it, right? Like it's sort of like a guitar in that sense. That you've got like the box and the hole, and then the strings over, it and that's the lyre. What's a lyre? I've seen depictions of no. You're thinking of a lute. I of a lute. I, I played like
1: this. Game. Um, okay. No, a lyre is, is a little, is, is like a U shape and the sound box is at the very bottom, like the sort of base of it uh, on a bigger yeah, scale. I that's guess what that is. is. What, it's, it's got where's a the
2: sound, sound box, Does, mm-hmm. does a harp have a sound box? The harp has a straight neck while the lyre has a curved one. Harps are usually larger ah. than their counterparts, but they have fewer strings. The lyre requires two hands to play because you hold it in your lap when playing it. The harp can be played with either one hand or two, depending on how you want to play it. Um, so I guess it's a lyre. <laughs> mm. Either mm-hmm. way, it's from or and and so those are chordophones. So that's where you you strike. So you the chord a is a string across. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a geometry type of chord not like a three notes yeah not like a not like a musical chord yeah Yeah. uh so fun nugget quote a cave painting in the trois frères cave in france depicts what some believe is a musical bow a hunting bow used as a single stringed musical instrument Um, it could also be a hunting bow used as a hunting bow Okay, no less dos. But the painting dates to roughly 13,000 BCE. So it's not wildly beyond the scope of imagination that people would notice that a bowstring makes a cool twangy noise. um, And that noise changes as the string length changes. So it's like Anna playing with a rubber band in math class. Yeah. Is what you did? You did.
1: No, so if if you hold a rubber band and then you put your head down on... So... If you hold a rubber band and stretch it between your two uh-huh. hands, and uh-huh. the, the upper hand is in a fist, if you put your ear down on that fist and then twang the rubber band, your—I mean, I guess it's your your bones that are the that are vibrating that conduct the sound to your ear. Oh, and you hear it really clearly. And I would just like play little songs to myself, bunk, 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 bunk. and didn't learn any math. So to to wrap up the whole performance archaeology thing, I stumbled on this website and Amber I would like you to click on
2: performance-archaeology.com. Grid, a performance archaeology space. A new space. Yeah. We created a digital so, space for the meeting of theater and archaeology. We want to share with you our creative process and our meetings with the communities around the activations and the archaeological material. Okay, what's this?
1: What's going on? So It's a series of performance pieces based on archaeological sites. It's weird art and archaeology. So, for example, there's Clothes, a performance based on the finds from the Bronze Age settlement of Koimisis on the small island of Thracia in Greece. Uh, So it's based on prehistoric loom weights, and it's an interdisciplinary theater slash archaeology performance on vesture clothing and its diachronic meanings. We explore clothes as a means of personal expression, an eloquent element of identity, and so on. Um, So it's based on the archaeological finds, but then they just really go ahead and expand on it into a performance piece. A sole performer on stage delivers the main part of the narration. Uh, Sometimes there's a visitor, a seamstress, a cloth merchant, fashion designer, uh, different each time, who conveys his or her experience and insights into the world of clothing so this is a site the grid is a site for these projects and there are various ones and there's
2: the meal there's the house
1: uh, so it's I'm just watching, like
2: i think i'm watching an excerpt of the meal man this is <laughs> it's it is it's really neat i it's people just trying
1: to feel how things felt yeah Um, Yeah. So listeners, I encourage you to check out performance-archaeology.com.
2: I mean, it'll be in the show notes. Good for you. Yeah. In our project, here I'm quoting from the site, In our projects, we combine practices from the fields of performance, archaeology, and anthropology in order to produce interdisciplinary community pieces that propose a different reading of the material past, human-centered, embodied, and personal. I think this is great. I, yeah, it's I, exactly what this, we've been talking about. This is exactly what we've been talking about, and something that I don't necessarily want to witness, but I'm so glad exists. Yes. <laughs> no, no one's going to make you watch this. I mean, I sort of I've, just did, but yeah, uh,
1: other than you. Um, yeah. No, this is cool. This is very cool. Yeah. With that. We're going to close the curtains on this episode. We will be back in your ears with more content next week. Until then, you can find all of our archived back episodes over at thedirtpod.com. You can also subscribe to The Dirt on any of your chosen podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you want to just go ahead and leave us a review and maybe five stars, that would be swell. You can also go to thedirtpod.com for... Uh, our syllabus, newly updated for educators. We can You can check out our merch. You can check out our whole scene. Our whole deal is over at thedirtpod.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we are at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Break a leg. Goodbye. Bravo.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.